Weepa team is proud to bring you Weepa Waves, the sound waves of your career. And the F words, the taboo stops here. Let's tackle the tough issues together. Hi, my name is Lindsay Rainwater. I am the founder and CEO of the Women in Fitness Association. We believe that storytelling has a magical way of connecting us all. We give a voice to tough topics and break down any fear of being alone. Weefa Waves is the podcast devoted to the sound waves of your career, giving voice to our global community. Please also enjoy our newest addition to our podcast family, F-Words. We highlight the taboo topics and feature words like fertility, finance, facelift, and fillers. We're going to break down any tough issues that we might face together. Enjoy today's episode of Weefa Waves and F-Words. Today, Wefa is bringing you the newest addition to the podcast family, F-Words. The taboo becomes the feature for this very special edition podcast feature. Wefa loves courageous conversations that tackles tough topics like family, fertility, facelifts, finances, and on today's episode, food. And that's where we're going to kick off because all these fierce, fabulous females who know everything about the F word, it's everywhere in our life. It's family, it's fertility, it's all the things that Lindsay just said. And we are going to get through the nitty gritty because F it, it's time to get vulnerable and the taboo stops here. So I'm Kristen Crowley, happy to join the WEFA team and excited to chat about our um, kind of own food struggles as we kick off the episode. My name is Jill Bunny. I am a Canadian and business partner with Kristen Crowley. I love food. I've had my own issues around food and I can't wait to just dive in and share my experiences with all of you. And we realize we are not alone in this journey. I'm Jennifer Halsall. I'm WIFA's COO and I've also been a fitness industry veteran who, uh, has, has her, has had her share of, uh, food struggles. So I'm looking forward to sharing those with you right now. And my name is Lindsay Rainwater. I'm the founder and CEO of the Women in Fitness Association, fondly known as WIFA. And I am in remission from an eating disorder and have a story to tell around what food addiction can look like, what healing can look like, and how that really has impacted my fitness journey over the years. Yeah, I think it's time to get started because Lindsay, you said it too. You you had this addiction and we'll, we'll go around the round table because all of us have our toes in fitness in some way, shape, or form. But fitness aside, we've had these issues since childhood. So these are things that happen regardless what industry you're in. So it's not just women in fitness, but since that's most of the women we're speaking to, I think we know it more than most people because it is such a physical thing for a lot of us. So Lindsay, we'll start with your story because this is one thing I don't think um, a lot of parents realize is how much pressure is put on children, mm-hmm. um, especially competitive athletes and kids who compete. And that mm-hmm. was your story, which I did not know um, your background prior to WIFA um, of what you had went through as a kid. So do you want to share with the group first and we'll get super vulnerable with yours? And then I know we all uh, have something to add to that. Yes, I would be happy to tee us up. I think it's so important to share these types of stories, especially once you're on the other side of doing the work because then you can really share from 
a perspective of hope and what's possible instead of the, the doom and gloom of being in it, you know, and what's possible. But I also will say for me, it's a choice on a daily basis to choose remission and healing instead of being in it, especially in a world that normalizes, um, you know, I don't want to, I mean, certain food restrictions, um, diet culture, you name it, but specifically on the, the, the kiddo front, I remember being seven years old and packing my lunch for the rink. So I grew up figure skating and I had a really rigorous schedule. So I would be on the ice from six to eight, and then I would have off ice training and then I'd have a break for lunch and then a stroking session and then a strength session and then a ballet session. And then I'd head home around three and I would do tutoring with my mom homeschooled intermittently. And I remember consciously packing like tuna salad without the crackers and seeing girls get bagels from the snack bar and judging their choices about bagels and cream cheese before strength training, because I knew that the tuna was going to get me further. And I was like eight and just the, you know, whether that was a, a healthy thought process for me to have or not, I'm sure could be argued to the nth degree. But the bottom line is that I was making food choices from a place of fuel and had this really sophisticated dialogue going on in my mind at a really young age, which was incredibly formative. And underneath all of that, the, the message was restriction. The method, the message was restriction and the message was food for fuel. And it really took the fun out of food enjoyment as a kid. Like I watched my little boys eat popsicles in the backyard and just the joy that that is in affiliation with summer. And whether you agree with sugar or not, there's like a cultural norm there. Right. And for me, that would have been scary because I would have been thinking about my next day's practice session and what that could mean if I wasn't as efficient, et cetera. And then when I looked at my, if I really look back and I, the reason I can look at this so prospectively is because I did a significant amount of therapy between the ages of 19 and 21 in an eating disorder clinic and really worked through because it crescendoed for me. Like my childhood was really rocky, but it crescendoed for me in high school, cheerleading and feeling a lot of pressure to look a certain way. And I remember being in a bathroom stall before a basketball game that I was cheering and drinking milk and taking metabolife. And that being like, okay, the meta- the milk is heavy enough in my stomach to absorb the ephedra I'm about to consume. And this is in the nineties where you could buy that stuff at Walmart. Mm-hmm. And just the, as a, I was 17 years old at the time and what that meant. And then a couple of years later, um, you know, counting out animal crackers as a way to reward myself for the mileage I had just ran and just how sad I like to really think about that disordered eating. Um, I saw a little post on Instagram the other day about, it was like a, a kiddo that was eat your veggies because they're better for you than fruit. And just how sad it is. Like the, the, it's like, why should a kid have to think like that? But somebody told them that the fruit was processed different than veggies. Right. So, you know, today the, the way that my relationship to food is and pregnancy in particular has done a really magical job of healing my relationship to food one step further, because it's presented me with the really inarguable truth of not getting to have a say per se over what my body does. So there's a human inside of me growing. I happen to be pregnant again right now, and I can eat a certain way. I can move my body, but at the end of the day, 
whatever that little human needs in my body's pregnancy process is going to go down how it's going to go down. And I ate really great with my first and then not so great. And I had different outcomes with both. Um, but what has happened is after the pregnancy, the healing process has really come and watching my body transform and saying, Oh, okay. She can do this. Like we can do this. Like we can go from 170 pounds back to 130 pounds in four months. And not because I'm not eating, but because I'm eating really nutrient dense foods and breastfeeding. And this is like trusting the process. And so today I tend to practice a, um, an intuitive eating. I, I really focus on intuitive eating. I love that method of like eating when my stomach is actually hungry instead of being super planned and methodical. And then I just tend to feel better when I focus on high protein and lower, um, like I, I love bread, but I end up feeling very addicted to bread when I eat it a lot. And so that's become a conscious choice instead of one that's really riddled with choices relative to diet culture. So I could go on and on and on about a lot of things, but that's kind of a brief overview of my history with food. Yeah, I think, and it's weird because we all have, like, I don't think the food thing ever goes away. And that's the thing. People are like, oh, I can live intuitively. I could do all these things, right? But can you really? Like, we still think about food. It's part of everything. Like, there is no escaping it. Um, and whatever you do is going to be wrong to somebody. So it's like finding the process of what you have. And I guess moving from that to restrictive eating, um, Jill, <laughs> we're going to go into this because for those of you who don't know Jill Bunny, um, who is a multi-champion in the um, fitness and bikini world, has been on the cover of five fitness magazines, has modeled for years, has worked with companies, had this glamazon life on stage that was kind of abruptly changed. Mm -hmm. But we've had this conversation, your food, I mean, you've had issues before competing and a lot of people go into like fitness competitions thinking, oh, you know, it's going to be fine when I come out of it mentally, I can handle this. I mean, mm -hmm. you went through the gamut, like, I, so share your story because I don't mm -hmm. think people realize you actually gained weight for competitions. Mm -hmm. Like you had to actually like put on weight and muscle, which that's the opposite of so many people. Yeah. I would say for, for a lot of kids, when we look back from our childhood, a lot of people go through maybe being a bit bigger and wanting to lose weight. And I had the complete opposite. Uh, I am a beam pole. If we look at my body, 5'11", and uh, not a lot of curves. And throughout my career as a volleyball player, I was always told, eat carbs, eat, eat, eat. You need to eat more. And I was always trying to put on weight. And, and people say, oh, isn't that nice? It's very hard when you're with a team member and they're told to eat salad and you have to eat pasta and pizza in front of them. So I always had a lot of guilt around food and also around the acceptance that with food, you're either accepted or not. So I always had an issue around food. Then I kind of led into a marriage, moved out to England, and I wanted to again be accepted. I wanted to be a beautiful bride. So I thought, well, if I lose a few pounds, because I had a lot of fun at university after I had a knee injury, I'm like, you know what, I could lose like 10 pounds to feel beautiful. And then people started to accept me. Wow, you look beautiful, like gorgeous. So then that got to my head saying, okay, well, I'll just keep going because I'll be more beautiful. I'll be accepted by more people. My husband would love me. I ended up being about 110 pounds. And it was a way that I could just literally control my life and led me to a significant eating disorder. And it was more based on control, I would say. And during my divorce, went to 97 pounds. And at 5'11", that's really, really frail. And then I thought, well, what can I do? 
I'll compete. And if you hear that now, it's probably not the smartest thing looking back. But in hindsight, I learned a lot of lessons and it allowed me to gain weight and have a better approach to eating per se. But there was also a lot of restriction involved. So during that time period, I went from 97 pounds, I actually went all the way up to 160 at my highest and then hovered around 135, 140 when I competed on stage, did very well. And again, the whole acceptance around food, you know, the more lean you looked, the more muscle you had, the more acceptance you had, the more followers, the more likes, the more sponsorship. And during the end of my career, I was diagnosed with MS and cancer, and I had to retire. And during that period, not only did the sponsorship leave me, but I also put weight on again, and not in a great way. There was a lot of just adipose tissue and fat, and I felt terrible about myself. And then what happened? Nobody accepted me. So I always kind of had this rule that the leaner I was, the smaller I was, and the more I could control my food, the more I'd be accepted by other people. And that took a long time to shift and change since I've had it since I was about 15 years old and a lot of therapy. I'll be admitting on that to have a better approach. And now it's just learning about the rules that I have around food and looking at them and being aware, what are my triggers? What are my behaviors? And then looking at it as what are the results that am I getting? And is it pleasurable? And the biggest thing I looked at was saying, do I want to restrict the food and not feel love and affection from my most favorite people on earth and bring Tupperware with me? And I realized that it's just, just not the way that I want to live my life now. It was very helpful in the past with a goal of competing. But now that I don't do that and live a lifestyle, I had to change my relationship with food. It can be done, but it does take time. Yeah, that's not a quick fix. Food is food is in, ingrained in us from birth of finish mm-hmm. your plate, finish this, celebrate around food. You have to have this. You And if you want to look good, you can't eat this. And there's so many back and forth. And I think, Jen, you and I are on the other side, like as far as not hitting the stage bikini wise in the same capacity. Um, but it's, you know, it's still... I don't know. It doesn't seem to matter what your actual trajectory is in the world with your body. We all seem to face the same exact issues and you fill this in a little bit. So tell everybody your, your story with, you know, your food journey. Yeah. So, I mean, when I, when I listen, thank you. When I listen to Lindsay and, and Jill, um, I, I hear a lot of structure and control and I definitely had elements of that, but I would say my, my relationship with food and disordered eating is sort of a, a smorgasbord of, of a lot of different things. Um, it, like my, my mother uh, dieted and actually still diets, um, ever since I can remember. And I remember being really young and, uh, at my grandmother's table and they would always, uh, like remind me only to eat half, not actually finish my plate, but only eat half of what I was served and to make sure that I slowed down. And I was eating, like I was a hungry kid and and I was an active kid and, and I like food. So when I'm served a plate of delicious food, like telling me to eat half is like, what? (laughs) Um, but I, because I, I didn't tend to do that. And like my, my dad was a professional linebacker in the CFL. So I, as a linebacker's daughter, I am not a small boned woman. And a lot of my, a lot of my cousins are really tiny and petite. So it was just like, I always felt like a little bit of a lumberjack when the family was together. So it was really early on. I kind of had that, uh, 
a switch flipped in my head that maybe I would need to to pay attention to what I was eating if I wanted to get accepted by family or if I was going to model the behavior that um, that I saw from my mom. And then on the other side, uh, I really started using food as emotional support uh, as my parents went through a divorce and, uh, you know, lots of different teenage angst that always happens through the course of your life. I would I would um, binge on whatever I could get my hands on when I was really upset and I would I would sneak away and I would go um, hide and, and hide the the remains of whatever I was needing to cope with whatever emotional uh, situation I was dealing with. And, um, you know, when, when you do any, any sort of extreme eating to deal with uh, emotional stress and you have a high amount of emotional stress, uh, then, then your weight swings back and forth. And what I learned is that I could manage my binges by, um, I, I never was great at making myself throw up, but I did learn to either use diet pills or exercise to binge. So, uh, like that was as soon as Lindsay said ephedrine, I was like, yes, like from, <laughs> from 16 to 22, that was definitely a, a supplementary staple in my disordered eating, uh, toolbox. So, um, I, uh, I, I had that kind of as a foundation going into my going into my 20s and into the beginning of my fitness career. And uh, I, I learned that um, any time my life felt out of control, there was one area that I could completely control. And that was my that was my food and my and my body. And it was just so easy to get lost in the minutia of that, that control pattern, because then nothing else mattered. I could hyper focus in on that area. And then the rest of my life could be completely Armageddon. And, you know, my diet was under control. Um, eventually it got to the point, like I had, I had attempted to, uh, someone had convinced me to register for, uh, I don't think it was a figure. I think it was a natural, natural bodybuilding competition. And I got about six months into the training and the, at some point, the restriction uh, required for at least my perception of the restriction required for the for the diet was just too much. And I, I, I literally started um, going the complete other direction. Like I as soon as I allowed myself one cheat, it went it, like spiraled into uh, you know, buying, uh, the, the biggest box of Timbits that you could buy and then Quiznos on the way home and then just really eating myself sick. So at that point when I couldn't stop, uh, the floodgate of binging, I, I, um, enrolled in a support group for disordered eating and, um, and, and therapy for three years to actually get behind the, you know, being able to deal with my emotions and be able to experience my emotions without needing to numb them using food. And that, that was a, that was a very long and, and learning, healing, everything, everything process. And it's, you know, it's something that I still 
that still is in the back of my head. Like that, that old wiring is still there. Like I, I still think good food, bad food. And I have to very consciously step back and say, no, not good food, bad food, just food. And food makes me feel a certain way. And if I want to feel a certain way, then I eat this. And if I don't want to feel a certain way, I eat that. But it's a, it's an ongoing journey. And there's just, you know, a, a varied amount of energy that I have to put towards it, uh, either high or low to, to keep it in a healthy space. Yeah. Wow. That's, and you know, what I took from all of these, it's really weird. I'm the only one who hasn't been to therapy for food <laughs> out of the group. So, um, I probably need to, I know I definitely need therapy. You got your support group here in the podcast mm-hmm. tribe. Don't yeah, worry. I've got, got amazing you. women. Yeah. I have amazing women around me. They're my therapists. Um, but cheaper than therapy. Yeah. I, yeah, it, it is. Yeah. And it's more fun. Um, I love I love all our ladies. And that's why we kind of got together on this podcast is because we all have very diverse backgrounds. And we want to really just talk about a lot of raw subjects. And my food stuff, I guess, overall, mine was all vanity based. Um, you know, it was, again, kind of like Jill's being accepted. I wanted to be pretty. Um, and I was not pretty as a child. It was definitely that kind of... Um, gawky stage lasted a very long time for me, but I grew up with two tremendous athletic parents. So similar to yours, Jen, like my mom was, my mom was built like a linebacker as well. In that sense, she played football, she played basketball, she played track, she went to college, like she did everything. And we grew up on a farm. So I lived on a horse farm. It was all manual labor. So as a kid, like I could eat literally whatever I wanted and not, you know, it wouldn't show because I was literally working off the calories. And my mom was very, adamant about that. Like, you know, as long as you're working out and you're moving, you can eat, you know, whatever. We didn't have much money. So, I mean, it was crappy food. It was processed food. I would eat, I remember eating entire cans of whipped cream. I would pack them into a bowl and then I'd spray more and I'd pack it and I'd spray more until I ate the whole can. I would eat bowls of pixie sticks. Like I would pour all of them in a bowl and just eat it with a spoon. Um, I had the worst eating habits as a child. Uh, Didn't eat a lot of vegetables, never tried seafood, like literally the worst eating habits. And that spun into showing, you know, showing horses. That was my sport, which was a little different. Um, You still have to look lean, like the leaner you look, the better you look on a horse, especially for, you know, equestrian status. And I remember one day my mom saying to me, because I was idolizing and I came up in the era of the waif supermodels and the Kate Mosses and seeing all those really skinny people and my family are not, they're all muscular, big people, same, you know, it's, I couldn't get away from that. And riding horses, your legs get bigger, you know, there's a lot of muscle. And I remember specifically my mom telling me one summer, and I think I was only 11, um, 10 or 11, uh, when she said, you will never model because I loved all the fashion magazines. And she's like, you're probably not going to model. Your, your thighs are way too big. You're not, you're too big to be a model. And so I decided to starve myself all summer. And same as Jill, I shot up height really soon. So I was again, wearing a size double zero and I was working, sweating in the barn all day, burning off all these calories and not replacing them. Um, so I had a full eight pack. I was working out every day through middle school. I was you know, trying to look better because I was such a dorky looking kid um, that I wanted to be accepted by people. You know, boy, you want boys to think you're pretty. And that was not my case. And they called me the AIDS patient and made fun of me for being so skinny. So either way, you don't win. Um, But that kind of snowballed into high school of trying to, again, be accepted. And then when I moved out of 
the state when I was young, I took a job in Virginia and I left very early and that took me to a place where I didn't know anybody. So I was like, well, I can reinvent myself and I can, you know, whatever. And I kind of did bikini competitions, not like Jill's, you know, Olympia and Arnold. These were like bars at the beach, you know, Venus swimwear, Hooters, like those kind of bikini competitions. And that made me even more judgmental of myself because I was always the bigger person up there compared to other people. And so that's when my hydroxy cut and ephedrine addiction started. Um, and I was popping, I mean, I would say anywhere from three to 12 a day, um, depending on what my schedule was. And I, I know I shared it with you guys before, but I found my food journal from when I was 20 years old and I was writing down everything. And this is before, you know, we had smartphones before we could look up calories. So I had a calorie intake book that was, I still have it. I saved all of this and I was eating on average between a thousand and 1150 calories a day. And I was at the gym for two hours, at least two hours, six days a week. And I would pop a veteran before I'd go, I'd go to the gym and do cardio for two hours. I'd come back and looking at the food in that journal, it wasn't good food because we didn't have any damn education. Like we just ate what we thought was low calorie. So it's like, okay, this handful of crackers is, you know, only 50 calories. So I'm going to eat that when I'm eating all processed shit all day. That's all my, all my journal showed was that it was just crappy food that I was shoving in my face, but still was so obsessive over tracking it. And I still, looking at those photos now, I could see my ribs. And at that time, I was like, I still thought I was so fat. I mean, it was, it screws with your head so bad. And I did those bikini competitions, got my boobs done to try and look more, you know, curvy, did all the things. And, you know, where did it get me? Like, I mean, I did some calendar stuff. Yeah, it's fun. Um, but I had to break away from that and I got into the restaurant business. And when I got into that, I started eating really good food, like high-end restaurant food, learned how to cook, learned about nutrition. And, you know, I think it's, it, it takes you through that journey. I still, I, was, I still struggle every, every day with food because I want to eat stuff that makes me feel good. Um, especially during this pandemic, you know, you want stuff that makes you happy. So it's, it's been a very long journey with it. And when I had my kids, same thing, postpartum and dealing with that kind of thing, I've learned the power of food. So I guess it really takes a, a monumental life shift to really realize the power of it and what you're doing to yourself. And I think that's something that every woman has in common, because no matter what we do, it's wrong. No matter what we say is our favorite food or diet, it's wrong for you in some way. Um, you know, so there's really, it's such a no-win situation for females in general. And that's sad to me that we, you know, we really judge people based on these little decisions that we don't know why they're making them. Like we don't know the root of the problem. Um, and that part, my food journey has definitely went up and down and I can't, I can't not celebrate without food. That's just me. And I've learned to accept that's not a bad thing. Like I love eating. I love food. I love celebrating. So I do it. <laughs> and, you know, it's, it's definitely a different journey, but that is funny that we all have those same like backgrounds. And I'm curious to know, because mine, I told you, my mom kind of said something to me, which triggered, did you guys like, was it with your parents that first said it to you that made you realize what you were eating or what you looked like? It was, so I'll chime in here. It was a couple of things. So the girls that I trained with at the rink when I was figure skating were all an average of five to 10 years older than me. And so I was watching 15 and 16 year olds as a eight, and nine year old. 
And so they did a fabulous job of modeling disordered eating because they were in it, right? Like they were in high school, not to say every high school girl, but they were more formalized, more grown up ideas. And so it was modeled. And then my mom has never had a healthy relationship with food and the behavior looked more like no, uh, she didn't have any personal discipline. And so it looked more like sneaking high fat foods or cookies without people seeing her eat it. And so I always used to see her eating things by herself, like around the corner. And so just watching wacky stuff, you know, when it came to eating certain things. And so mentally at a really young age being like, that must be bad. Like, is that a bad food? Why is she doing that? And then later on, there was, a, there was one particular statement that was incredibly triggering to me. And it was, it was the, let's see here, it would have been the summer after my freshman year of college. And I was working through some of my food stuff, but not, not being public about it with my parents. And my mom made a comment and she said something to the effect of like, you're looking a little heavy and it spiraled me, spiraled Mm -hmm. me. It wasn't even that specific. It was just someone that I loved saying something that I already felt scared was true. And from there, it was like, similar to what you're saying, nutrition or not. I was just like, I I had a, a little spiral notebook, like the teeny tiny ones. And same thing, like at the front of it, I had kind of a, a rubric of, you know, this many calories, because it was all a game of how many calories in versus calories out. So it was, you know, the foods that tasted the best to me that were the lowest calories. And then I was to the point where I was just matching exercise to calories. in. so I was like, okay, if I burn 500 calories on the treadmill, I get to eat 500 calories of food and Mm -hmm. journaling it to the nth degree. And that's, that's what ultimately landed me in therapy um, because it was so extreme so fast. Um, yeah, I got down to like, I think it was 11% body fat. Like it was just bad, 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 but yeah, parents definitely triggered it. Definitely add on that one. And I would say more structure. So anybody, the listeners that that was my thing of not having the freedom to choose. So one aspect, having an older brother that literally could eat the entire fridge in one go, my parents put a lock on like a cellar just so that we actually, they, they didn't have to go every day and get food. Oh like, otherwise God. we wouldn't have enough money. Like legit, he would eat a full like cheese block. Wow. So food was <laughs> literally locked away that I couldn't just go and have food when I felt like it. And then going into volleyball, we literally had a binder and it was specifically laid out what we were supposed to have. So at like 10 or 11, I followed a food plan. If you want to be the best and play for Canada, this is what you have to follow. And of course I wanted to do that. So then you lead into competing. It was like a perfect segue for me to not actually deal with my shit. And it was a way to be accepted again, because people, you say, yes, like follow your plan. And then that's the competing aspect of saying, looking at other people around me and thinking, well, I'm doing better than that competitor because I can control my food better than you. And then I win. And then when getting sick and cancer, that doesn't really matter at all. And then for once at 30 years old, I had to figure out how to follow an unstructured plan, which was the most difficult thing was to actually choose that I can do that. And that in itself, I learned from my own coaching was I actually was controlling other people's food. So I could see that all I wanted to do was control myself and other people and everyone would be safe and happy. And through my own therapy, I learned, okay, you know what? I have a freedom to choose and not have so much structure. And then that led me into, I don't actually want to write a chicken plan for anybody else either. I want them to have the freedom. 
So I realized how my own control can affect other people and impact and them having their own issues, which I inevitably was a part of being a competition coach and then getting out and seeing it. So that's kind of my spiral of structure and, and realizing the devastation that food can do not only on myself, but also impacting others. Can we just ban the chicken, the chicken and, and white rice and green? Can we just ban that? Like and broccoli, <laughs> steamed broccoli. Damn it. Don't Who really enjoys that anyway. Tilapia. Oh. Tilapia oh. and asparagus. Ah. Oh. So, uh... <laughs> More Mrs. Right. Dash than anyone knows what to do with. Yeah. Mrs. Dash. Oh, yeah. And Anything salt um jen so what was it i mean you, you said your dad was an athlete did he try and get you guys to eat more or less yeah i i always got comments about my body from my parents like uh my 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 mom is a very comparative and critical person self-critical and comparative with others so I, like, and I, I hit puberty like fast and furious. Like when I was, when I was 13, I was like, boom, I had boobs and boom, I had hips. So I would, I would always get a comment from her that I was bigger or smaller than fill in the blank. And, and, and as soon as you get compared, you learn to compare and, you know, we're programmed as, as girls to compare. So I I was just like, you know, I've got this, she's got that, who's better, who's worse. And, and then around that time, my, my parents split up and my dad uh, ended up dating a, a much younger woman. So that just kind of made my mom kind of implode and she was in full mom mode. And at some point she also like flipped and started doing four hours of aerobics a day. And she was in the thong on the, on the box steps and drinking her tab. And she stopped, she stopped cooking for us. Like she ate cereal for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And my sister and I sorted ourselves out with SpaghettiOs. So, um, like she, she completely transformed her body in, in, in a really short span of time. So then I also was really impacted by that very dramatic change and, and also by the, by the message, because she overshared with me uh, about what my dad was doing with the, with the younger woman. So like that whole the whole message about value and your value and your body and how that contributes to that uh, contributes to the success of your marriage. Like really, it was really crappy programming, but it all boils down to a good diet solves everything. So, um, that, that really, um, kind of underlined and underscored a lot of the, a lot of the habits that, that came out of that time period. Um, and, and, and like, like, like Jill, like I, I just continued to, to study nutrition. I, I, I've been a personal trainer for more than 20 years. I, I love helping people along a path of, of transformation, but, you know, very early in my career, a lot of the transformation that, that I was able to accomplish with people had more to do with me passing on unfortunate and dysfunctional advice, um, based on what worked for me. And like, I guess that's, that's one of the reasons that I really wanted to do this, this series of podcasts is just to like, be able to be open about our, our mistakes and to discuss it a little bit. Um, 
but yeah, I like, I, I thought I, for me after therapy, a big part of my, my healing was completing as a client, uh, the precision nutrition coaching program. And then as a, as a student precision nutrition level one and level two, just cause there's, there's so much re- reflection and freedom that you, that you learn from that, from that system. And it, it's, it's not a diet, it's a philosophy and a practice. And it's the, you know, chop wood, carry water that you're going to do for the rest of your life. And it's like, whenever you get off balance, you just go back to center. So that, um, that's, that's where I eventually migrated to, you know, like getting to know yourself, like Lindsay's talking about really intuitive eating comes from awareness. And, you know, it's nothing that you can ever nail or be perfect with because it depends on the day. And it's just, you gotta, you gotta approach it with a whole lot of self-compassion and a whole lot of commitment just to stick with it. So that, that, that's, uh, that's where I am now, compassionate and uh, persistent. (laughs) Those are all great. Yeah. Great words. And precision nutrition is really great at that. Um, Creating balanced lifestyles. We'd be curious to hear from our listeners too. um, What food, nutrition courses you've taken that have either been really good or really bad. Cause I think in the fitness world, you end up going to these courses or someone who's reputable and that person just destroys you. Um, I know in some of our upcoming episodes, we're going to focus on competitions and coaches and what they do to people and their hormones and their bodies. And we're going to have some pretty, um, in-depth, uncomfortable conversations about that and eating disorder, like disordered eating in general. Um, So this is kind of to to kind of premise all of that, that we've, we've all been there. There's a lot of equality and commonalities that women share that we just don't talk about. Um, You know, I was very lucky. My mom was a muscle focused person. So she was always focused on being strong. So I, I am grateful for that. But she was, again, a perfectionist, would clean the barn in her red lipstick and her eyelashes. Everything always had to look presentable and be pretty and attractive. Um, so, you know, that was an era. Like we go through these eras, like our moms were a certain way, you know, our generation's a certain way. The next generation, we don't know what the hell they're going to do um, when it comes to food because they're more educated. Like they see all this farm to table. They experience food in a way that we never were able to. So I, I truly hope and pray that that shows up later in life for them and the next generation after them where they don't have to have these kind of conversations about popping pills and taking, you know, stimulants and laxatives and everything else that everybody's done at least at one point. Um, And I mean, I've still, I'm still one of those people who will use the diuretic pills if I feel super puffy because I'm retaining water due to hormones. So, I mean, I don't think we, we still deal with this shit. Like it hasn't gone away. Um, It's just how we deal with it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think as we kind of tie a bow on this conversation for our listeners, I think it would be really fun for us each to go around and say like the one or two things that we do that really work every day to really help either combat the the mental chatter around this, or like, I know there's definitely practices every day that I do to keep myself in a space where I can intuitively eat. So does that sound like a nice way to tie a bow on it to you ladies? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, I guess I can get started. Okay. Yes. Cause I, I was, I'm reflecting on our conversation and I, I hope we've created a space today for, for folks to relate, to feel seen, to feel that, to help normalize, like if they have something going on, that it's okay. And to ask for help. And then also that there are things that you can do to heal that cycle. And the, I know for me every single day, I, whether it's the 
Headspace app or just sitting quietly or something, I do some sort of quieting my mind that gives me the chance to really have a set point for the day where I pause before I jump into anything else and really get quiet. Because one of the, and the reason for that is because the mental chatter that was going on in my mind 24 seven is what really led me to want to numb out with something and to control. And so for me, from a recovery standpoint, to keep some of the the hamster off the wheel, starting my day with some sort of reflection and pause really, really helps. And then also to breathe between bites. So that as simple as that might sound, if you put down your fork and you breathe between each bite of food, even just one full breath, it brings an incredibly different conscious awareness to your eating pattern that I personally didn't have prior to learning that technique. And it's something that you can do at a restaurant. You can do with it. Like people don't have to know what you're up to. And it's a completely different way of ingesting food from my perspective. So those would be my little, my tidbits. That's a good mm-hmm. tip. I'm going to try that. Yeah. So for myself, I'm, I'm definitely into science. So anything that can help my brain, I will go to that first. And I learned CBT and I'm heavily invested into neuroscience. So every morning I will do a neurocycle. So whether it's food related, whatever's going on in my day, I will gather information on how I feel, looking at my emotions, looking at how I feel physically, what am I behaving? What am I doing? And then looking at actually how am I perceiving myself, taking like a different lens and actually viewing what's going on. Can I see it from a different perspective? And then looking at, is there an origin story? Is there something coming back in my roots as to why this kind of pops up? Because it happens. And then taking a breath and saying, okay, what can I actively do today to improve or do something that's going to be beneficial and not allowing this to be stagnant? And I've noticed a big difference, but again, it's habit and there's not something that we do it one day and then, oh, it's all fixed. It's literally an everyday practice. And that's what I've noticed in the past three years of every day doing something in the morning and literally writing and gathering that evidence. It has made such a difference. I'm not perfect by any means, but I feel more in control and my emotions aren't on this roller coaster that never ends. It's a good one too. Jen. Um, yeah, I, I, I am not as scientific as Jill, but I do really like the journaling, uh, process just to check in with myself and whether it's mental or physical, um, and to be to be honest, I wait until I'm hungry to eat my first meal. It's more like I need that knock from my body. I don't want to eat out of automation. I want to eat out of cue when when it's ready. So my first meal every day, uh, it might be eight in the morning. It might be 11 in the morning. It might be one o'clock. Uh, that's when I really can feel my hunger, hunger knock. And that just kind of keeps me in check with uh, with my needs. That's a good one too. Yeah. Um, mine is because I know if I tell myself I can't have something, I am horrible in that situation. And if I track food, I actually undereat. So tracking food for me means I undereat by hundreds of calories, um, which is not good for me either. You know, when you're in your forties dealing with hormones, shouldn't be undereating. So I try not to track and I try and give myself one thing a day that I really want. So it's either my coffee and chocolate in the middle of the day, I buy really good expensive ass chocolate and I have coffee or I have my cocktail at night because Jill knows this. I'm a big 
margarita or wine type person. So sometimes just having that little sip at the end of the day is what is going to make me happy. And it's not throwing me off kilter. It's not thousands of calories, like going to, you know, binge on a whole box of cookies or Oreos or whatever. Um, So, you know, those two things allow me to have something I can look forward to throughout the day, which in turn helps me make healthier choices throughout the day because I'm like, oh, I get my little thing today. So I'm going to, I would love, you know, I love, and I do love fresh vegetables and salad. So I actually like that food, um, but I will never turn down a French fry or a burger. So I can't, you know, I'm I'm very balanced in that sense. And that took a long time to get to that point. Um, That takes a long time to eat intuitively. And, you know, now granted this past year has been a shit show for everybody. So, you know, we're all dealing with something because of it. And if I could just keep my COVID curves ass out of the whole thing, I'll be happy because I am <laughs> happy that I put on more curves. Um, and that has been my favorite part. So if I'm feeling down, I put on some leggings and go look at my butt in a mirror and I'm like, damn, that thing looks good. Like <laughs> eat the chocolate, honey, like don't worry about it. Um, so I think that takes a long time. And I, I hope this conversation helped Um, our listeners who run the gamut of age realize that, you know, there's not one way to do it. And we all have a struggle and a story and we're here to help you with that. Mm -hmm. And gosh, we, we did our inaugural F word podcast because the taboo stops here. We are all here for you. And um, we love sharing stories and connecting with women. Gosh, this was, yeah, I, I I love you ladies. I'm excited to go on this journey with you too. Mm -hmm. Yes. Me too. Thank you, everyone. And until next time, we'll see you. WeFa Waves is brought to you by, actually, this is an opportunity. Right now, WeFa Waves is offering commercial spots to your organization. Contact us at askwefa at womeninfitness.org and let's share your platform with our audience.